0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com slash techsf. Now, from our nation's capital, this
1: is Bloomberg Sound On
2: you're here to make a significant announcement. I've registered as an Arizona independent.
1: He is very disappointed that uh, he was left behind again. This is the second time that an American has, has been released. Bloomberg, sound on.
2: Politics, policy,
3: and perspective
1: from DC's top
2: names each week. We've to stop saying how strong he is and building Russia up. I've decided to leave that partisan process. I've told
1: her over the last few years that if she wanted to dip a toe in the Republican Party's pool, we'd be happy to
4: have her jump in.
1: Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
4: exit. I think we're going with that. Either that or cin or maybe it was just a cinematic day discussing Kirsten Cinema, the senator, her exit from the Democratic Party. She is an independent. We'll get into what does that mean for committees? What does that say about the, I think, newly minted swing state of Arizona? We've got a great panel coming up. We've got Samara Klar, political science professor at the University of Arizona. Rick Davis, our Bloomberg Politics contributor, is a former McCain, uh, John McCain campaign manager. John LaBombard, the senior vice president at Rock Solutions and a former comms director for Kirsten Cinema, as well as Joel Rubin, the former deputy assistant secretary of state, who's going to tell us the latest on the Brittany Griner-Victor boot swap and the significance of that. Big news for a Friday afternoon. We also have to talk about everything Congress has to do. We'll get to that. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, stepping in for Joe Matthew today. What a day, we're gonna lead with the sound from Senator Kirsten Cinema. I want you to hear how she described her exit from the Democratic Party, the fact that she is now an independent. She said the following to Jake Tapper on CNN.
2: You're here to make a significant announcement. I've registered as an Arizona independent. I know some people might be a little bit surprised by this, but actually I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, a growing number of Arizonans And people like me just don't feel like we fit neatly into one party's box or the other. And so, like many across the state and the nation, I've decided to leave that partisan process and really just focus on the work that I think matters to Arizona and to our country, which is solving problems and getting things done.
4: We're joined now by Samara Klar, the political science professor from the University of Arizona. Professor, thank you so much for joining us as an Arizona State grad. We don't need to turn this into a rivalry on our show. Uh, I'm grateful to have you here with us. Now, the senator said some people might be surprised. I, I just have to suss out. Was this actually surprising?
5: Well, we all have the benefit of hindsight now. So of course, we can all say, Oh, no, I saw that coming. But, um, you know, it's it's a surprise when someone leaves a major party, because we know that typically independent candidates have a hard time winning. Kristen Sinema is in a bit of a different situation. She's got low approval rating among Democrats in Arizona. She doesn't have a Democratic base that she can rely on. And she had a real legitimate fear of facing potentially a strong primary challenge before her 2024 race.
4: So she seemed to cast this as a matter of how she views herself in Washington, that she doesn't fit with either party. This is sort of an ideological issue. Uh, But it sounds like maybe you think this is about her polling. This is about her stance in Arizona. Is this about her place in the caucus or her security and, and potentially lack of popularity with her constituents?
5: Sure. Well, you know, um, Kristen Sinema has made a lot of big headlines for obstructing or delaying Biden's legislative agenda in a number of ways. But ultimately, she's voted with the Democratic Party somewhere between 93 and 97 percent of the time, depending on how you're calculating her party loyalty score. So her party, your voting record actually doesn't, look like a a real moderate necessarily. Uh, You know, we are in an age now where we expect a lot of party loyalty out of our representatives, but she does typically vote with the Democratic Party, as I said, upwards of 93, 97% of the time. Arizonans, on the other hand, are plurality Republican. There's a lot of Republican voters in Arizona. They outnumber Democrats. The second most populous group of voters in Arizona are independents. So I think this was a strategic move on her part, of course, to try to figure out how she can get the most support possible in advance of her
4: 2024 run. So is it I guess, would you characterize it as a move of desperation because she was not in a safe space politically with the Democratic electorate? Or I I guess how would you characterize the polling outlook for Senator Sinema in her home state?
5: Sure, well, politicians want to win. They're all about re election. That's the first thing we learn in political science. When when you get elected to power, you want to keep power. And they're all trying to figure out how they can successfully uh, win re election. Her polling has been very low in Arizona, and there's been a lot of discussion of primary challenges. What we've seen in recent elections in Arizona is that this large proportion of independents are willing to move across the aisle. We are seeing independents in Arizona who typically vote for Republicans, not supporting Republicans. That's why we're seeing so many Democrats win in recent elections. So I think she is seeing a somewhat electorally malleable group of independents here in Arizona, given that they outnumber Democrats. She is ostensibly uh, perceiving independence to be a, a winning voting block for her. We know independents are not a block. They are an ideologically incoherent group, but in Arizona, independents do seem to lean liberal. Uh, Katie Hobbs won independence in Arizona by 30 percentage points. Mark Kelly won independence in Arizona by 20 percentage points. An independent uh, Democrat has the best chance in Arizona of getting those those voters out.
4: So uh, that raises the question. If someone jumps in on the Democratic side, it could be Ruben Gallego. I saw a very interesting tweet by Greg Stanton seeming to indicate he had good uh, statewide polling. If a Democrat, a registered Democrat jumps in, wins the Democratic nomination, and we've got a three-way race with cinema, a Democrat, and a Republican, what is the most likely way that that shakes out?
5: Yeah, that's the big question. I mean, that's the gamble that Kristen Cinema is facing. You know, I, as an Arizona resident, I can tell you, moments after her announcement, I was getting the Ruben Gallego texts, just like everybody else, asking for money, trying to get this raise going. Uh, but you know, that's that's the question. If if independents here in Arizona are going to break for cinema, or if they're going to support the Democratic candidate, typically independents will vote for one of the two major parties. Cinema is hoping that she can cobble together those among the Democrats who do support her, as well as moderate independents who are going to potentially align with this new narrative she's trying to create for herself.
4: So it sounds like you don't necessarily think this is a matter of mutually assured destruction between cinema and a Democrat where a Republican just sweeps through and wins. Is that that right?
5: You know what's going to be really tricky here in arizona is that we have seen republicans falter so consistently over the last several election cycles but one thing that has been consistent has been trump arizona republicans have not been supportive of trump trump lost in 2020 trump's endorsed candidates martha McSally, blake masters carrie lake they are losing with trump potentially off the ballot off the presidential ballot in 2024 republicans will have a chance to regain lost ground in arizona if however trump maintains sort of this shadow he is casting over the republican party then we could see republicans continue to falter here in arizona it's really going to depend not only on how democrats play this out but also on the candidates the republicans choose to run
4: That is a very important point. I I have to say, through the Trump lens, uh, the, I I guess, shifting perspective of Jeff Flake uh, from a Tea Party guy to almost coming across as a moderate over the course of the Trump years was a a fascinating thing. Uh, I do have to ask on the Democratic side, though, because I think that clearly matters, is it clearly Ruben Gallego? Is, is it potentially somebody else? I, I, are we looking at a, a very obvious frontrunner who is going to uh, go after her?
5: I don't think there's a clear frontrunner. I mean, we've had, you know, just a few hours here to process all this in Arizona. Uh, so I think we're going to have to see who it is. Ruben, Ruben Gallego has made it quite clear that he is eager uh, to be that Democratic candidate. But I think we'll probably see a, another few uh, good candidates emerge out of the woodwork, especially over the next few weeks and months here.
4: Well, I want to play a, another clip for you and, and hear what you think about this. Uh, Senator Cinema at a food bank in Mesa uh, described her issues with the angry rhetoric in politics. Here's what she had to say.
2: I will not be a part of what I consider to be an escalating tit for tat. The angry rhetoric, the desire to get one over on the other party, the desire to punish each other. Everyone knows I don't function like that.
4: So is that, uh, Professor Clark a good re- representation of what a, a large number of Arizona voters want to hear? How does that resonate with them?
5: Well, I can tell you that the vast majority of independents, this is not only in Arizona, but nationally as well, typically do support one of the two major parties. But the reason they are so loath to publicly identify with that party is exactly the reasons that Senator Sinema is outlining. They are not associating themselves with the vitriol and the fighting and the conflict that we see so regularly associated with partisans, be it in media or, you know, campaigns. So by appealing to sort of this norm of civility, by appealing to a a refusal to to sort of engage in that kind of a battle, she is hitting the heart of why so many Americans, a growing percentage of Americans, won't identify with either party. So, you know, she's got the right talking points when it comes to appealing to independents. It's gonna matter though, what her policy positions actually are and whether they will align with the majority of independents as well as a substantial portion of partisans so that she can get a plurality of votes.
4: Well then, just at the end here, I want to get you to identify what the issue really is between her and Democrats and how that plays into votes. You mentioned that she voted a very high percentage of the time with Democrats, but there were some high-profile uh, instances of a back-and-forth in which she ended up voting for a piece of legislation but, but pulled some things out of it. There, there was a carried interest loophole that Democrats wanted to take out of their tax bill. Uh, she got the party to take a measure out of that. There's also been some frustration. With her uh, standing behind the filibuster, Emily's List uh, went after her a little bit earlier this year, saying that you know on voting rights you need to uh, you need to go after the filibuster. Aside from the percentage of times that she votes with the party, what do you see as the real sticking point between Senator Cinema and the bulk of Democrats? What what made them so dissatisfied with her, and vice versa?
5: Yeah, no, I know. That's a great point. We have to distinguish between the regularity with which she's voting with the Democrats, which is very high, but also the salience of the issues where she's not voting with the Democrats. And she is being obstructive or delaying or amending things in ways that are chipping away at what Democrats were hoping to be a more of a progressive legislative agenda. So she seems to be a bit of an obstructionist when it comes to some of the more, uh, more progressive, more um, impactful pieces of legislation that Biden and many Democrats were hoping to achieve. A good analogy, frankly, is John McCain, who has a reputation or had a reputation, especially toward the end of his career, of being obstructionist or not being loyal to the Republican Party. John McCain also voted with the Republican Party the vast majority of the time. He had a very consistently conservative voting record. However, it was sort of these high profile votes where you would see him breaking from the party and leading to that narrative that he was a disloyal party member.
4: Samara Klar, political science professor at the University of Arizona. Great to have you on, excellent insights. I, I've got to go to our panel now uh, because we've got a perfect panel for Arizona news. We're, we've got on Rick Davis. Our Bloomberg Politics contributor and a former John McCain campaign manager, as well as John Labombard, senior vice president at Rock Solutions and a former communications director for Senator Cinema. Uh, given that we just heard the McCain comparison, I have to ask Rick: Is that an accurate comparison? Is Senator Cinema setting herself up to be the the John McCain of the Democratic Caucus?
1: Well, I do know that, at least in my uh, interactions with Senator Sinema, she had enormous respect for Senator McCain. Uh, I'd say uh, wanted to uh, do what she could to uh, sustain a legacy of independence and uh, 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 and I think aspire to be the kind of maverick uh, that we were just describing that, you know, uh, somebody who thinks for themselves and tries to do the right thing, regardless of what party. Uh, is uh, supporting the uh, measure, and, and I think she largely has done that. I mean, her impact on bipartisan legislation is second to none uh, since she's been in the Senate. And uh, even though some Democrats focus on things like Build Back Better that she, um, you know, uh, helped obstruct, uh, you know, most of the things that we consider. Uh, Joe Biden's greatest accomplishments legislatively are things that she co-sponsored with Republicans. So I think she actually has done a really interesting job of uh, fitting into that uh, John McCain mantle. And and I wouldn't be surprised if she tries to uh, uh, do the same thing electorally in Arizona.
4: Well, that's an important point by Rick that she did end up voting for major accomplishments for the Biden administration and mainstream Democrats. John, to what would you attribute this rift, which is significant enough for her to be a registered independent now? What what really is the rift between Senator Cinema and Democrats?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll say that Rick is exactly right. Senator Cinema has ranging from her victory speech in 2018 to her maiden speech on the Senate floor after she was elected. She cited Senator McCain quite often and continues to, um, you know, they don't see eye. They didn't see eye to eye on a lot of policy, but she looked to him as somewhat of a personal hero. And the the one character trait that she always pointed out about Senator McCain was his willingness to do what he believed was right for Arizona and the country even if there was pressure in his party or or either party to do something different. And, you know, with respect to I think that your previous guest, the professor, made some good points. But with respect, I I just have to disagree in terms of this being about campaign politics. As somebody who knows Senator Sinema, who worked for her for years and now counts myself as a supporter and a friend of hers, What she is, first and foremost, is a policymaker. That's what her passion is. She's kind of a wonk when it comes to this stuff. And I never have seen her happier uh, and more engaged and more fulfilled than when she's sitting at the table uh, with the G10 uh, negotiating the bipartisan infrastructure law. She worked with Senator Murphy on gun safety and mental health, Senator Baldwin with marriage equality, the CHIPS Act her work now with Senator Tillis to protect dreamers. Um, that's where she thrives. She is that convener between the parties. And so to me, what what was the impetus for this decision on Senator Sinema's part? I don't actually look at it as a rift explicitly between her and the Democratic Party. I think she's looking at what's happening in both parties. And it's really hard to look at these last few years, especially, and not, not see that it gets harder every single day to get to that bipartisan sweet spot of compromise. That, by the way, in my view, Senator McCain was quite a champion of as well, uh, because of those partisan pressures pulling us to the fringes in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party.
4: Right, some great insights on I guess, who is Senator Kirsten Sinema? Is she, uh, in a sense, the the Democratic John McCain? And and what does this mean in D.C. as well as in Arizona politics? Coming up, we're going to talk about Congress's very, very lengthy to-do list. I don't know if you've noticed, but they have to avoid a shutdown by next Friday. We've got a great panel, and we'll get into the latest in foreign policy as well. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On, on Bloomberg Radio. December 16th, one week from today, is the deadline to avoid a a shutdown. Congress has to get moving. They are not particularly close uh, to a deal to fund the government, but they've only got a week left. So let's get into the details uh, and the big picture of how this is going to shake out, shake out and what exactly they're waiting for. Uh, guys, I'll, I'll give you a brief introduction to this. I've been on the Hill asking about it a, a number of times. Um, Republicans want to cut non-defense spending. They're okay with a, a deal to increase military spending uh, in the upcoming government funding package, but they want uh, a lower amount for domestic agencies than Democrats want. And they're pointing to the big bills that Democrats have already passed, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the money that went out uh, in the stimulus in March 2021. There is still some lingering resentment uh, and some some economic points that Republicans have made about not wanting to allow uh, an equivalent increase in domestic agency funding levels. Rick Davis and John Labombard are with me. Rick is a Bloomberg Politics contributor and a former John McCain campaign manager. John uh, Labombard, senior vice president at Rock Solutions and a former communications director for Senator Kirsten Cinema. Rick, I, I want to start with you. Do you see any point? In Republicans trying in this lame duck session, at least trying very hard, to strike a deal with Democrats to uh, get a government funding measure done? Or should they just do, as Kevin McCarthy has said, kick it into next year, Republicans will have the House, they'll have a, a bit more leverage? Uh, is there any point in Republicans working with Democrats in, in these last couple weeks?
1: You know, I think that uh, uh, certainly from the Senate side, I think there's a real desire to get an omnibus. Uh, I don't think that uh, two uh, chairmen uh, uh, and, and ranking uh, uh, members of the uh, Appropriations Committee want to have their last uh, uh, budget go down as a continuing resolution. Uh, and so I think there's, there is a sincere effort on the part of leadership to not kick it downstream. Uh, we, we know from uh, the past when we've done this before that the CRs never turn out the way you want them to, right? There, there tends to be a, um, a disproportionate relationship between how much time goes by and what little effort is made to, to pass a budget. And so this is the pressure period. Uh, it's not surprising to me that they haven't got a final top line number. Usually the hard part's the defense bill. And uh, and in the defense number, but uh, the reality of this is uh, they can easily get an omnibus done if they can just get to that number and then let it apply to all the different, uh, categories of uh... uh... departments
4: right once they agree on some basic numbers here's what we want to spend on the military here's what we want to spend on domestic agencies that clearly seems to be something that clears the way now as i mentioned the deadline is next friday december sixteenth i can tell you as somebody who has covered these before the real deadline tends to be lawmakers not wanting to work on Christmas the Friday before Christmas is the 23rd uh, John what do you see as the outlook for them accomplishing something that doesn't ruin my personal holiday plans which clearly is the most important thing here
6: <laughs> that that is the priority I agree with you completely uh, no I I find myself again agreeing with Rick here this is um, I'm gonna remain optimistic I think You know, those jet fumes always impact, uh, you know, the thinking of members of Congress who want to get out of town and spend the holidays with their family as well. And in addition to, you know, Rick's very good point that Senator Shelby, Senator Leahy, this is kind of their last rodeo. They want to get this done. The other long term perspective to keep in mind here is if you think this uh, potential omnibus process is hard. Just wait till next time when there's a Republican led House of Representatives um, with a super close margin, uh, a democratically controlled Senate with an equally very close margin. Um, Things could get wild next go around when we're trying to keep the government open. So so as hard as this seems, this could be kind of the easy part. Um, And I do remain optimistic only because a CR would, uh, the numbers seem to indicate, be pretty damaging for veteran services, for the VA, uh, and for military spending as well. You know, I, I really, I tend to think we'll probably see a little bit more posturing from both sides, but hopefully getting that out of their system will clear the way to actually get this done in the form of an
4: omnibus. As the pressure builds uh, I, I think that it seems to be the game of chicken that forces somebody to make some concessions as we get closer to the deadlines. Rick, what does Kevin McCarthy have to gain or to lose here? I mentioned that he has said, we can just kick this into early next year and try to get on it in January or February when he hopes to be the Speaker of the House. It'll be a Republican House. Uh, how how do you see that, uh, I guess, political calculus playing out for Kevin McCarthy Uh, Does does he need to come up with some sort of win here in order to shore up his stance as the leading contender to be speaker? How does this play into that?
1: You know, I'm actually surprised that uh, economic issues, the debt, things like that haven't played more in the public discourse of the leadership fight in the House. Um, It really seems to be driven by personalities and ideology and not by issues. Um, There's little he can actually do to influence the uh, omnibus outcome. Uh, if if they come to a number and the Democrats hold tight in the House to pass it. So uh, I think he'd just as soon keep it simple, stupid, right? I mean, like the fewer things that he has to talk to anybody about right now to try and cobble together this 218, uh, the number of votes he needs to be speaker, uh, is is I think the only thing he's really focused on. And from what I can tell, the calls he's making to members, it's all they're talking about is leadership issues and rules, not policy. And um, I find it fascinating because in the past when we've had big speaker fights, it's usually over a policy issue and uh, it doesn't seem to be the case in this one.
4: Right. Well, speaking of policy issues that are not really being discussed or not the focus, uh, there was quite a bit of hubbub about the debt limit and the idea that maybe Democrats would try to address that potentially on their own in the lame duck, even though the deadline isn't until well into next year. Um, John, why are Democrats not pushing harder to get something done on the debt limit on their own before there's a Republican House?
6: Yeah, honestly, I think a lot of Democrats would want to Um, certainly the Democrats I've worked with in the past. Senator Sinema in particular was um, very interested uh, whenever this issue issue has cropped up to find a way to kind of diffuse that metaphorical time bomb uh, that could do some truly extensive damage to our economy ranging from pension benefits to, you know, jobs and 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 the wealth of, frankly, everyday ordinary people. Um, But the next thing is the most important thing, and that's literally keeping the lights on in the federal government. Um, There's other issues that throughout this lame duck, I think leadership in both chambers really wants to see addressed. There's even, you know, hope springs eternal. And while it will be really hard to see this done, there's even hope for a bipartisan path forward on some kind of immigration policy uh, to boost border security and protect dreamers. Um, I'm not necessarily predicting that that's going to be easy, but there's just a lot on the plate for folks in both chambers. And as much as this Congress has been, in my view, remarkably productive uh, in terms of legislation that has gotten done and passed There's always more to do. I certainly wish that we would sort of take this time bomb off the table permanently. Um, I'm not sure if that's a popular position, but it just seems like we're playing games with the national and even global economy on too regular a basis. And uh, if there was more time, I think Democratic leaders would love to address it.
4: Well, I, I know what you just said is a, a pretty popular thing with some Democrats. I, I want to know what you know about Senator Cinema's position on this, and in particular, whether they can get rid of the debt limit or not. Where, where do you think she would come down on addressing this, Democrats only, through the reconciliation process? I, I ask because Joe Manchin has said, no, this should be bipartisan. Is Cinema somebody who, who might consider doing this uh, to get it off the table in a partisan way?
6: Well, my experience with Senator Cinema related to the debt ceiling uh, and, and to a degree also government funding to her, those are truly monumentally important issues. Right. Keeping the government open is important. That's Congress's primary function uh, and their number one task. The debt ceiling in particular is just it has the potential to be so catastrophic for so many people that I have never heard her. Draw any red lines around those issues about how they should be addressed. Um, you know, certainly Center Cinema's uh, preference is always for uh, legislation to be bipartisan because that's how we get lasting results that don't just get reversed by the next Congress. The debt ceiling obviously occupies a slightly different place. This is something that pops up perennially for both parties that are in charge, and both parties tend to struggle. Uh, if the minority party tries to exercise its will over uh, raising the debt ceiling. So uh, I, my guess is that if there's any opportunity to address the debt ceiling, uh, Senator Cinema would not hesitate. But that's just a guess.
4: Well, that is a, an important guess and some important insights, because even if they don't do this in the lame duck, that's going to be very important next year. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. WNBA star Brittany Griner is back in the U.S. That was big news yesterday. In the swap for Victor Boot, the Russian arms dealer accused of supplying weapons to Al Qaeda and the Taliban, among others. Paul Whelan, the Marine Corps veteran uh, arrested in 2018, accused of spying, is still held in Russia. And yes, this big news is subject to some political debate. Uh, some, I, I don't know if we'll call it Monday morning quarterbacking, clearly a difficult situation, uh, but some doubts about whether this was the fairest trade, whether this was even. Uh, the former defense secretary William Cohen had this to say about uh, Vladimir Putin's stance on all of this.
3: Where Republicans are saying, well, wow, this really rewards Putin. He's stronger. He's not stronger. He's weak. And we ought to stop saying how strong he is and building Russia up. Russia is the enemy of freedom uh, and, and liberty for individuals. And we're seeing that play out
4: I'm joined now by Joel Rubin, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bush and Obama administrations, perfect person to talk to about making sense of this decision uh, and and the level of disappointment with an American who is still in Russia. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for joining us. What do you make of of this, uh, including those comments by uh, former Secretary Cohen? Was this an even trade?
3: here here to secretary cohen because uh it, it's it's really uh frustrating frankly to hear people complain about an american being brought home who's in in captivity abroad uh and using it for political purposes to try to to criticize the biden administration and i think john bolden for example is criticizing it well john bolden passed on on doing a deal uh, in 2018 to get paul Whelan out early on and uh Um, You know, getting getting Brittany Griner out was a high priority and kudos to the president for making the tough call and having his team uh, negotiate this this end state. And uh, it's tough, but it's needed. And it was a good move.
4: Well, second day politics aside, what does this say (laughs) about uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden? Is this in any way a sign of um, easing tensions or what can we make of that?
3: Yeah, you know, Jack, I, I think this is really the core point, right? Like this relationship is is in addiction and even lower than addiction right now. The United States is actively and we are appropriately actively supporting Ukraine in defending its territory against Russia. Russia is losing on the battlefield. It's now turned to Iran to become its uh, weapons supplier of choice and, and uh, essentially just using drones to bomb civilian areas inside Kyiv. Uh, without military value, just to freeze and starve Ukrainians for no real strategic purpose. So uh, things are bad, without a doubt. Vladimir Putin is losing. He knows it. His people don't want to fight this war. Uh, he's looking for any salve that he can get. So for him, getting Victor Boot out is a sort of a, a temporary victory. Uh, but really, the trajectory of this conflict is in no way, shape or form changed today. And it's going in the wrong direction for Russia. The, the problem is, is how long can Russia continue to create pain for innocent Ukrainian civilians? And, and in that it seems like Putin has a lot of patience.
4: Well, I have to ask you, especially because I know you've got a, a background working on nuclear security issues, yes. uh, given past, the past comments by Putin uh, alluding to the possibility of, of using nuclear weapons, what, how would you characterize the, uh, the conversation of the state of play on, uh, on nuclear in this context?
3: I mean, he really has recklessly thrown around language about the use of nuclear weapons, the world's most dangerous weapons, uh, weapons that if, if discharged uh, at, a, at the tune to a couple hundred, according to Union of Concerned Scientists, we'd have a nuclear winter killing a billion people. Uh, the United States and Russia, between uh, our two countries, uh, own about 90 plus percent of the world's nuclear weapons. So uh, he's reckless in his language. It's a sign of desperation. The United States nuclear arsenal is much more potent and powerful and effective. Uh, and, and interestingly, just yesterday, Putin made some comments essentially trying to steer away now from that rhetoric, understanding full well that there is zero support inside the Kremlin for a nuclear war that would annihilate Russia. Uh, but it is dangerous and reckless rhetoric, and it demonstrates a, a real uh uh, uncertainty about his country's military capacity at this stage and trying to use that to extort threaten and intimidate was his intent it did not work uh by any stretch he did not push back on military support for Ukraine's sovereignty and I think we're seeing now that Putin understands that it's a threat that's really not worth actually putting into effect
4: well, in case there are further discussions on this, not on the nuclear topic, but on people held in Russia, I'm yes. curious what, what comes next for uh, Paul Whelan. Let me play you this comment yeah. from his brother, David Whelan.
1: He is very disappointed that uh, he was left behind again. This is the second time that an American has, has been released from Russia and that Paul didn't come home. Um, I, I hope that he understands that uh, you, you know there are other factors that caused it to happen. Um, but I think it must be very hard for his mental health uh, and to figure out how he can continue to su- survive day to day um, with that sort of uh, uh, disappointment.
4: So, Joel, what what do you how would you characterize the outlook in the near future or the foreseeable future uh, as it relates to any discussions on Paul Whelan? It's very tough.
3: It, it truly is. Uh, Paul Whelan now twice has seen other Americans leave and he's he's still held captive. Uh, there in in Russia uh, in Iran there are Iranian Americans there are Americans that have been held in Cuba and North Korea still in Syria it's very difficult it's painstaking uh the executive branch of the State Department has a, a leading presidential envoy in charge of what they call hostage affairs uh, multiple agencies are involved the White House uh it's a full full effort uh to try to spring these 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 unjustly detained individuals but Without a doubt, Vladimir Putin is going to milk this. Uh, He is looking for more concessions. He did not get any concessions on anything related to American support for Ukraine uh, as part of this deal, nor should he have. Uh, It's painful. We can have nothing but sympathy for the Whelan family and and for for Paul uh, at this moment. But uh, certainly there are assets available out there. uh, And I think we're going to now see a more focused negotiation just about him. Now that one person is out, it's one less variable to have to worry about.
4: Right. Joel Rubin, former deputy assistant secretary at the State Department. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to wrap this one up with our panel because we've got Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor and former John McCain campaign manager uh, with us. And, And Rick, I just want to hear your thoughts briefly on the Republican criticisms that have come out from the likes of of Tom Cotton on uh on this prisoner exchange what 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 is at play here when you hear republicans say that kind of thing
1: yeah i'm a little surprised by uh senator cotton's uh, remarks because look this is this is a situation that's plagued both administrations republican and democratic alike and you know as joel has described uh it's very situational there's a really good group of people who are charged with the uh, uh, hostage affairs uh, that work over time to ensure that Americans have the best chance they have of liberty and getting out of these incarcerations. And And, and the reality is uh, taking political advantage of something like this at this time uh, really doesn't help uh, uh, any of these hostages or Paul Whelan specifically.
4: Right. A tough issue that we will stay on going forward with uh, a lot of interest in Paul Whelan still held in Russia thanks again to Joel Rubin for joining us in this segment coming up we gotta make it a little lighter on a Friday afternoon we'll talk about the latest from NASA I'm Jack Fitzpatrick this is Bloomberg
0: from Silicon Valley to Wall Street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of AI adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?
4: About 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit and roughly, roughly, 25,000 miles per hour. That's how fast on Sunday a spacecraft is going to enter Earth's atmosphere. This is the Orion spacecraft, uh, supposed to splash down on Sunday in the Pacific Ocean. A nice little accomplishment to see that happen. This is the unmanned uh, ship that I- is sort of paving the way for an eventual uh, Artemis 3 project to send people back to the moon. Here's how NASA Administrator Bill Nelson described what's coming up this weekend.
3: We want to know that that heat shield works at about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, um, almost uh,
1: half as hot as the sun. Coming in at 32 Mach.
4: So I I did the math on 32 Mach, two miles per hour. Uh, some public service journalism there in in translating that. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, filling in for Joe Matthew today, rounding out your Friday with Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor and a former John McCain campaign manager, and John Labombard, senior vice president at Rock Solutions and a former communications director for Senator Kirsten Cinema. I I have to ask the political angle of this. I love watching these things just when they happen. Uh, But, Rick, can you sum up, as the federal government gears toward an eventual mission to Mars, this Artemis program is gearing up for an eventual mission uh, with people going to the moon again. Uh, What is the political significance of this, if it's symbolic or if it's a major achievement for whoever's president at the time? uh, What's the political lens on sending people back to the moon and eventually to Mars?
1: You know, ever since President Kennedy challenged, you know, our uh, corporations and government to join together to go to the moon, uh, I think it's always been like this big think thing for a president, right? Oh, I just love to be able to get beyond the confines of the political gravity of the United States (laughs) and what we do every day and, 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 and think big. And I think this is exactly that. I don't think people's thirst for adventure has changed much since then. And, uh, this is one of the few things that seems right now to be kind of non-political. And and it's refreshing because it shows technical, technological prowess that the United States has in this area. But I think also, you know, at some point there's going to be a big debate on sort of what is space to us. And, you know, both from a security perspective, from an environmental sustainability perspective, from... Uh, A lot of different resources are available. So uh, I'm very excited about the fact that right now this is sort of a common interest by uh, anybody who's uh, part of a party. And uh, I hope it stays that way.
4: And, and John, I'm curious how you see this playing into, you know, President Biden has played up funding for federal research and development. I mean, where, where are we headed with the federal government's role in the sciences and what does this say about that?
6: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the news that I'm here for. What what NASA <laughs> is doing with Artemis and with the other missions and the incredible news that they're creating over the past year. I mean, this is, as Rick said, just the stuff that unites us as human beings. It's, it's beyond party. It's beyond nation. We are explorers and we are daring and we break down these barriers and Look, I'm not I'm not the youngest guy anymore, but I really feel like I missed my era with the old Apollo missions. And I just I long for these days where all of us as human beings are looking up at the stars united. Um, In seeing these kind of adventures play out, I think whether it's President Biden or president of any party, I mean, let's just say we're lucky I am not in Congress because I would be dumping all the money into NASA (laughs) that, that they don't even need. I just think this is the kind of stuff that as human beings we need to be doing. And I'm so, so excited for the work that NASA is doing these days.
4: It it is a generational thing. I'll point out that an early memory, I was pretty young, the last time John Glenn went to space. I I could not forget it. Didn't see people go to the moon, but maybe someday I will. Uh, Thank you guys for your uh, insights. Rick Davis, John LaBombard. Thank you again to Joel Rubin and Samara Clar in Arizona. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.